I don't mind Josh preaching a part of my sermon because um, that was beautiful. I agree with Josh that this is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. I'm not sure how Josh would know that because Josh hasn't read the whole Bible, but, uh, but I will verify that it is true. Um, <clears throat> so I want to say something to you. I've been meaning to say this to you for weeks now um, and just haven't had the right opportunity uh, or whatever, but uh, uh, we've been talking here for a while at this church about engaging more with the Christian calendar. And we've done it more at certain times. Last year we observed Holy Week all week long. It was a wonderful experience for us at leading up to Easter. We've entered into the season of Advent more. And uh, that season of waiting and looking for uh, the birth of our Lord. And then we celebrate Christmas together after that. But one of the things we've stayed away from talking about here is the season of Lent. And uh, that's the, the season we're in right now, uh, if you're talking about the Christian world. Now, some of you immediately are thinking, oh, that's Catholic. And so I just want to tell you up front, that's, it's not. <laughs> there are plenty of Protestant churches that uh, pay attention to the season of Lent. And uh, I want to ask you to give it a thought this year, okay? The reason we would enter into the Christian calendar is, and we've talked about things like this here before, about how we live in time. We cannot escape time. We just naturally inhabit time. And we are, we are human beings who keep up with time. We register time. If people are lost on islands, they mark trees to keep up with time. You know, it's just what, it's what happens. Uh, by marking time according to the gospel, it's one more way we say Jesus is Lord of everything. We want we want all time to center around the gospel. We want to re-enter into the great themes of the gospel by marking time according to the Christian calendar. I think that's at least partially an explanation for the wisdom of the early Christians uh, in, in saying let's, uh, let's have a calendar that, that doesn't just center on pagan days, but let's center it on Christian days and, and think about time and all that. And I think the best way I can explain this to you is to, to read, this, this is the book I read, I try to read it every other year uh, during the season of Lent. And the introduction, introduction explains this season. So let me just read it to you. Not, not the whole introduction, just a, a piece of it here to give you maybe a little bit more understanding. Because you've, you've thought of Lent, maybe you've heard of it. Well, that's time weird people give things up. They try not to do something because they just want to be hard on themselves. Well, maybe this will give it a little bit more understanding to you. It's a season of repentance with a purpose. So listen to this. To observe Lent is to strike at the root of complacency. Lent, literally springtime, is a time of preparation, a time to return to the desert where Jesus spent 40 trying days readying for ministry. He allowed himself to be tested, and if we are serious about following him, we will do the same. First popularized in the 4th century, Lent is traditionally associated with penitence, fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. It is a time for giving things up, balanced by giving to those in need. Yet whatever else it may be, Lent should never be morose, an annual ordeal during which we begrudgingly forego a handful of pleasures. Instead, we ought to approach Lent as an opportunity, not a requirement. After all, it is meant to be the church's springtime, a time when, out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant, empowered people emerges. No wonder one liturgy refers to it as this joyful season. Lent is a time to let go of excuses. Register that note we started with. It, it, it brings us out of complacency. We let go of excuses 
for failings and shortcomings. A time to stop hanging on to whatever shreds of goodness we perceive in ourselves. A time to ask God to show us what we really look like. It's a time to face up to the personal role each of us plays in prolonging Christ's agony at Golgotha. And yet our need for repentance cannot erase the good news that Christ overcame all sin. His resurrection frees us from ourselves. His empty tomb turns our attention away from all that is wrong with us and with the world and spurs us on to experience the abundant life he promises. This is what Lent is about. Uh, Lent is a season for us to wake up, to say, hey, I have distanced myself from God. I have become complacent in my spiritual life. And yet Jesus went through a time of testing. Jesus went to the cross. And I turn to look at the cross. And as I look at the cross, I look back at myself and say, man, I have sinned against God. I put Jesus on the cross. And what should I do now since that's true? Now, I decided to start with that today because it's very, very relevant to what we're talking about. Josh has already talked about it. And that is... Uh, this text, 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2, deals with our sin. And it deals with getting real about our sin. That's what Lent is about. <laughs> it's about getting real about the sin that is in us and that plagues us and that we have to deal with. And that's going to be a challenge to a society like ours where largely people don't want to talk about sin. People don't want to confess sin. They'll talk about a lot of things, but not sin, People will talk about something being wrong, something being unjust, sometimes something even being evil, but rarely sin. And when people do get caught in something that we would call sin, they don't really like to confess it. You know how, how confessions are made today? Well, yes, we made some mistakes. Right? A few weeks ago, I think it was when Olivia was in, uh, out of town, that uh, I was keeping the girls and I told Avery that she needed to clean up uh, she needed to clean up a, uh, an area where she was sitting. And uh, it, it was very dirty. I was very clear about this needs to be cleaned up. And I came back to her later, and it was more messy than when I had left it. And I said, Avery, I told you clearly to get this cleaned up, and you've made it messier than it was before. And she didn't say anything. So I sat there for a second, and I said, Avery, can you explain that to me? And she was quiet, and she thought, and she said, I can explain it by saying, mistakes were made. <laughs> I don't know where she learned that, but that's how you make confessions on TV, right? <laughs> that's how you handle things if you're a politician and things come out against you. Well, mistakes were made, <laughs> right? We don't know how to just own up to sin. And I think part of the problem is that our society does not have God in view. Sin immediately draws God into the conversation because we think of it as a theological thing. And suddenly we're dealing with a split screen on the monitor and it's not just us with other people. It's God standing in judgment and saying, you owe me something with this. We're not good at talking about sin anymore. And yet the season of Lent 
this text itself draws us into an unavoidable conversation. If we're going to be Christians, we've got to talk about sin and what we're going to do about it. Last week, Brother Terry led us helpfully through uh, the first four verses of the, this first chapter. Those are beautiful, beautiful words where we get the idea of Jesus coming to us, the Word eternally, as Brother Terry showed, how it's connected to the creation story itself in the beginning. In the beginning, Jesus was there. The Word was with God and the Word was God. This, this Word, this eternal Logos, took on flesh and dwelt among us. But I, I love that we're called into this, this world where, where John says, we saw Him. We touched Him. We talked to him. We could ask him questions. And now we know what to say because of that. We know what to invite you into because of that reality. People throughout their lives, throughout history, wondering what's God like. Like Paul preached to the people at one point who were worshiping an unknown God. In a sense, that's what all pagan people were doing always, worshiping an unknown God. And Paul says, that's the God I proclaim to you. He could do that because people had actually seen this God. We talk about revelation so much. You know, the scripture is a revelation. We need to treat revelation appropriately. We need to recognize revelation's authority, whatever. We forget what a great gift it is that we have a God who doesn't stay at a distance but says, I want to reveal myself to you. And now, because I have revealed myself to you, you have a message to give to people. You can say, God's like that. God's just like that. And we know it because of this revelation, this unbelievable, unexpected revelation that he would come to us. And that's, that's where we pick up then in verse 5 here. Uh, sorry, it's not on there. I'm, I'm forgetting. We're using these books now. Yeah. If you have your book or your Bible, open it up. In verse 5, John says this. This word, eternal word, God himself come among us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Let me stop you right there and ask you, what is the message that you have heard from him? If you were to answer that question, what is the message that you believe Jesus brought to the world? What would it be if you were to base that on what you were trained up hearing in the church? What's the message that you heard from him? Here's what John says. The message we heard is that God is light. See, it was a, it was a revelation about God. The message, the message that was brought was about God himself. About who God is and what you can know about God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light is a symbol for what's illuminating, what's morally beautiful and good. And what Jesus did was he showed us that God, we cannot continue living with the silly caricatures of God that are given to us in the world. We have to know that God is this beautiful blazing light. There's nothing bad about God. And if anything you've been believing in your theology 
is leading you to think something bad about God, your theology's wrong. <laughs> and there's so much of this stuff out there. I, I've told you before, many of you know this, that I, I came up in a legalistic context, and, and we could talk about all kinds of scriptures about why I know it's wrong. The basic reason I know it's wrong is that God's not like that. The fundamental message we have is about God. We see God in Christ. God is beautiful. But you see, if there were darkness in God, then you could justify the darkness in yourself. And you say, well, God's kind of like that, so I'll be kind of like that. You can't do that. In God, there's no darkness. Zero. There's nothing bad in him. And so we're called as the church to move out of the badness and step into his light. Now, we get to verse 6. And you get a series of if statements. Let me put them up there for you so you can kind of see how they work here. And then I'll, I'll remove this. But. So you see here these if statements. There's a, there's a negative statement and a positive statement. I guess we could say it like that. It's if we say this, then it's bad. But if we do this, then it's good, right? That, that's what we have here. So this is the kind of structure that, that's guiding this uh, next several verses that we're, we're moving through. Okay. I'll, I'll just leave that up there for you uh, so you can, you can follow that as well. Hopefully follow along in your book. Um, it may help you to see the, the logic. And uh, when we get to verse 10, I'll say a little bit more about how that works. Uh, so the first if is, and this may be coming, these may be direct statements from uh, the the opponents, if you want to think of them as the Gnostics, like Brother Terry talked about last week, or, or something like that. Uh, maybe direct statements. Uh, maybe, maybe not. These could be just heretical things that, that others were saying, though. Either way, they're, they're false statements that John wants to address. Mm -hmm. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. You cannot say you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. I'm going to talk a little bit more about fellowship in just a minute. But fellowship, this is about having unity with God, being with God and with his people, uh, in on what God is doing. And if you claim to have fellowship with this beautiful God of light, and yet you walk in darkness, you don't have fellowship with him, and you're lying, and you're not practicing the truth. What is it to walk in darkness? It's not to have a struggle with sin. We're going to see that here in just a minute. To walk in darkness is to be given over to things that you don't want to come into the light. It is to have a life that is given over to darkness. It is to have a character that has accepted blatant sins and decided to hide those things. Right, we're not talking about somebody who's wrestling and struggling, but somebody who's living in darkness. Walking is a metaphor for living. I mean, we walk a good bit today, right? Everybody's got their Fitbit and they're, they're trying to count their steps and everything, right? Uh, I don't think they needed that back then because that's how you got around, right? <laughs> they didn't get in their car and drive to work. They're going to walk, right? Imagine if you just walked everywhere all the time and then you think, okay, walk in the light. You know, you're, you're living in the light. If you're walking in darkness, you're living. Your life is given over to that. It's what you're doing. Okay, this, is the way, this is the way you have decided life is going to go. I'm going to keep things hidden and live in darkness. And I need to talk to some of you before we go any further, okay? I don't know who you are. 
but I am very confident there are some people in here you know that you have decided to live in darkness. And I need to say very directly to you, you've got to stop that. If you're doing that, you do not have fellowship with God. I don't care how consistently you attend the church services. That's a part of the lie. Part of the lie that you're putting out there before others. It says, oh, I have fellowship with God. Look, I sit here every week. You can't give yourself over to dark things and then claim that you're really in fellowship with God. And I am confident that some of you right now, you know, you know that God is speaking to your heart. It's not me, God's speaking to your heart. <laughs> and you've got to come out of the darkness if you want fellowship with God. I don't know what it might be, may be that you have decided to hide. But whatever it is, is you can't have fellowship with God if you continue in it, accepting it as a way of life. We're not talking about struggling against it, okay? but accepting it as a way of life. You see, there are Christians who live for many, many years, and they've just given themselves over to lying, just the way they get things done, to stealing, to some sexual sin that they're ashamed to admit, but they've decided that's just the way it's going to be, and I'm just going to keep doing it, and I'm not going to talk about it, to slandering and holding bitter hatred towards others, and then wishing they would die. These kind of things, these are darkness. And when you give yourself over to those kind of things, you're not walking in the light. You are not in fellowship with God. Don't fool yourself. I would be an irresponsible preacher before you today if I looked at this text and I didn't tell you, you've got to come out of that. Your life is going a terrible direction. You're probably already experiencing it. And if you're not, you will eventually come into the light today. There is a way out. You can come into the light and walk in fellowship with God. I want to just uh, stay with the negative statements for a second, okay? And then we'll come back to the positive statements. So somebody, somebody might hear John say that and say, well, I'm not walking in darkness. Look at the verse 8 there. I don't have any sin. And this, this may be related to Gnostic claims about uh, uh, material reality being insignificant. What really matters is your spirit, so it doesn't matter what I'm doing in the body. Maybe it's related to their claims that they uh, have reached such a spiritual level that they don't really need. They don't really need to worry about sin anymore. They're so enlightened. They have this knowledge. That's what Gnosticism, the word, comes from. Gnosis, the Greek word, uh, has to do with this, this knowledge. Whatever it is, they're, they're saying, yeah, we're not really impacted by sin. Sin's insignificant to us. That's what these heretics were saying in that community. And, and verse 10 really seems to be saying it's almost the same thing. I mean, it puts it in the past tense. I think they're close to the same thing. Maybe we could, we could tease out the difference, but we don't have to worry about that right now. The, the basic idea is you say you don't have sin. We have not sinned. Maybe we haven't sinned since we were converted, since we attained this knowledge, whatever it is. Basically, you're saying it's, sin's nothing to me. I'm above that. And he says if you're doing that, you're self-deceived. And a further step even with verse 10, 
You're making God out to be a liar. Why is that? Because God said he has to save you from your sins. <laughs> and so you, you uh, act like you don't have any worry about sin, no trouble with sin. Well, you're actually, you're not just impugning uh, the preacher who says that, John or whoever. You're impugning God because God has come to save you from your sin. And it, the truth or his word, it's not in, even in you. You're outside the box of the Christian faith. Now, that's a strong statement. But if you're acting like sin is nothing to you, you're so high, high above it, you've stepped outside the, the truth, this beautiful gospel. It's not in you. Being able to deal realistically with sin. That's what Christians do. That's what the Christian faith allows us to do. Just what Josh was sort of preaching and praying about. I still can't. I'm trying to figure out what that was. But it was, it's what he was calling us to think about just a minute ago. Like, to, to think that we can stand before God, not because we've reached some level where sin is irrelevant, but because we have reached a, a place with God where we can be real about what's true in us and then about what's true with God. And so he calls us to stand only by grace. G.K. Chesterton said that, uh, I have found only one religion that dares to go down with me into the depth of myself. This is not what you'll find in secularism. According to Chesterton, it's not what you'll find in any other religion. Christianity will go down with you into the depth of yourself. Not only that, it will bring you back up. And it will say, come stand now. So we don't have to cover up. We don't have to hide. We don't have to lie about what's true with us. I believe that uh, we do a lot of things to get around addressing our sinfulness, covering it up, sometimes more explicitly than others. Like I said, by acting like, well, I go to church. I do some good things. I help people out. All these things that, that uh, turn the table to look at our, our goodness, which is not all inappropriate, except for when it takes us to a place where we start denying our desperate need for the blood of Jesus and for his mercy to be upon us. We never can get to a place where we say our sin really isn't that big a deal. It doesn't really matter because I have arrived. I've elevated myself. I've come so far. I've come to understand so much. My sin is not really that big of a deal. We will never have enough right answers, enough right practices, enough special experiences to where we can look at God and say, I am no longer a sinner desperately in need of your mercy. Knowing this is part of what it means to be a Christian. Salvation without addressing sin. That's secular salvation. That's the salvation you get on Disney movies. 
where the, the answer to your problem is you look down deep in yourself and you find it, right? That song that says, uh, you finally see the truth that a hero lies in you. All right, do you know what I'm talking about? The Christian story is, you finally see the truth. You are a beggar at the king's table. Not that you see the truth that the hero lies in you. You're a beggar. You're a beggar at that table saying, Lord, I have no right to be here, but I throw myself on your mercy. And then mercy starts to overflow in the Christian community. And that's what's beautiful. We no longer stand up above each other even though we know we're all sinners. Because I know it's true about me. I don't have to stand up above you when you tell me it's true about you. I already know it's true about you even before you say it. But we're on the same level. We talked about revival recently. Brother Terry was showing the video last week about revival. Now I'm not an expert on this, but I, I have a suspicion that if you look back not just a suspicion, I think I've read or heard things about this before, but if you look at back historically, you would find uh, that rarely are there revivals that occur where there's not a, an outbreak of confession. This is how God wakes people up. God wakes people up by saying, hey, let's get real about what's going on now. And let's come out of it. The reason why I think sometimes we can't have uh, calm and kind conversations with people is because we have not really embraced our situation as sinners. This is why on cable news, you can't have anybody who's talking without hostility. At least I think it's part of the reason. <laughs> because you're dealing with secular salvation. No matter which channel you're watching, you're going to see the open hostility. People cannot have civil conversations. And there's a whole logic to it. It's, well, I've figured out what's right. I've put myself against what's bad. I've raised up and I've become for what's good. I'm for justice. I'm for, for this right cause, whatever. And all those other bad guys haven't done it. You see, you save yourself and then you are self-righteous. <laughs> But if you come to the table of the king and say, I have no right to be here except for your mercy. Then you start to look around at everybody else around you and say, I can be merciful to you too. <laughs> because I'm just someone in need of mercy. Failure of mercy all, always follows upon saving ourselves. And what we're called to in these passages is to recognize the seriousness of our sins. And the, the irony is here, okay, this is kind of a paradox, but the more we grow in Christ, the stronger we get, the more aware of how deep our sin issues go. And it's real growth. It's like we, we get to know the Lord better and the light becomes brighter. And the brighter the light comes, the more we can see what's there. And it helps us then to start dealing with what's there. We, we can't really clean the house until we see where the dirt is. Right? We grow and we start to become more aware that there are deep levels of, of sin there. And so we become more merciful. <laughs> and we live into more of a, a, a gentle compassion for others around us. And that's why I, I found myself recently singing uh, the song by Frances Havergal. And Fran, I don't, you probably don't know much about her, but I'm pretty sure she was well beyond me in sainthood. <laughs> And she wrote a number of songs. Uh, one of those songs uh, that I was singing recently 
she says, is it for me, dear Savior? You know that song? Is it for me, dear Savior, thy glory and thy rest? For me, so weak and sinful, oh, shall I be so blessed? Is it for me, thy welcome, thy gracious enter in? For me, thy come, ye blessed, for me, so full of sin. O Savior, my Redeemer, what can I but adore and magnify and praise you and love you evermore? So that's Frances Havergal. And if you were around her, you'd probably think, man, I've never been around somebody so saintly as Frances Havergal. Yet there she is writing to the Lord saying, is this really for me? Somebody so full of sin. The brightness of the light of God that purifies us and changes also exposes us. And so we're never at a place where we say, well, I just don't think I ever need to confess anymore. The broader issue with all of this is a spiritual elitism, a kind of way where we put ourselves up above others because of our spiritual accomplishments. That is always a move against the way of God. Andrew Murray, the, the great saint himself, said, uh, uh, the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. And that's exactly what's going on here with these people. They've elevated themselves. Oh, sin's not an issue. I'm so far beyond. I'm above. I have such knowledge, whatever. That's a mark of counterfeit holiness. Okay. okay, so what's the response? Well, verse 7. If we say we're walking in, if we say we have fellowship with God, we walk in the darkness, we don't. The response is, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The answer is to walk in the light, that is to have a contention I'm sorry, to have an intention to consistently live in purity and holiness with God. To live in a way that we don't have to hide. And that's our intention. We walk in the light. Doesn't mean perfection at all, right? This means that this is the balance we're getting at here. We're walking in the light. Then we have, and this is the big surprise here, is we have fellowship with each other. <laughs> now what is Fellowship. Uh, people today talk about having fellowship halls, right? Or, or, or for years have talked about fellowship halls. And we don't call it that. We call it activity center. But some people would probably say across the street what we have is a fellowship hall. And more of what they, they think of that is it's kind of a hangout. You know, This is a hangout hall, a place where we can have some food together. Right? That is not getting at the biblical idea of fellowship. This word koinonia, uh, the, it's a, it's a rich word. It has to do with sharing something, partnering in something. But, but especially here, we're being brought into the life of God. So what we have in, in the scriptures in Christian theology is, is a, a story of God in three persons. God's in eternal fellowship with himself. <laughs> three persons, God, this eternal life that flows. And what happens through Christ incredibly is that life flows out to embrace others and bring them into it. And as we are brought into it, we start to have fellowship with each other. Guys, this is more fellowship than you get by playing on a basketball team together. It's more fellowship than you get by having a book club or, or, or reading with people. Yes, that's in a sense sharing. But the scriptures are calling us to something beyond that. The scriptures are saying you can have the life of God. 
And then in light of you having that life with God, you have a fellowship that draws you together. And you join in a common purpose together with that life flowing in you. Something like that is the mystery of Christian fellowship. And that's why then I am uh, able to join with somebody like Brother Cruz, even though we don't have a lot in common. Right? I'm not much on the guitar. I did take guitar lessons years ago. And my teacher literally started avoiding me when I called to try to get him to come back and teach me more. I can still play an A, though, like nobody's business. I'm not, I can't talk about bands and guitars and, and, and things like that. But when Cruz and I get together, it's Jesus in him and Jesus in me that starts talking. And there's a unity there that transcends all kinds of differences in our background. The same is true for a lot of us in here. I'm using Cruz as an example because we sit together and we, we both get, get misty-eyed talking about the goodness of God together. That's what unites us, you see. The life of God flowing in us, bringing us together, and then putting us out into a common purpose with him. We have fellowship with each other as we're walking in the light. Our world is hungry for fellowship, especially in this society where we live such individualized lives. People live in such isolation from each other. And I think it's the the plague of loneliness because of where our society has come. Just a communal reality, not all bad, but communal reality. People don't live together anymore. There's this plague of loneliness and people are longing for something like fellowship, only it goes under different names like community or just friends, or whatever. But what we have to offer actually is a different thing, deeper and richer than you can find. It is real fellowship. But let me tell you, it is only truly found among Christians when it's people who are walking in the light. And I wonder if one of the reasons why Christians who who get so frustrated, they're looking for more fellowship, they're longing for more fellowship, and they're not finding it, I wonder if the reason why is they haven't started by walking in the light. Because in the light that we come together, and share the life of God together. Otherwise, what we call fellowship is just superficial small talk. And we're saying, yeah, let's just, let's just sit around and chat. We want something more. We don't really know how to get there. Sometimes it becomes harmful gossip, that kind of stuff. There's something better. There's something rich and good that the body of Christ is meant to have. But it's only, have, it's, it's only experienced as the life of God flows in and among us. Okay, let's move on towards, towards the end here. If we say we have no sin, well, first of all, let me not go past this. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. People don't like to talk about blood that much anymore. Last week, we had a blood drive here at the church. All of the good people participated. We recognize that blood is a significant uh, Significant part of human biology. Can't live without it. And the blood of Jesus becomes a symbol for us. Symbol of life and death, really. And what we see here is it's his death cleanses us from all sin. That's what happens as we walk in the light. I'm going to say a little bit more about that, but let's, let's move to the next part here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth that's not in us. What's the response to that? We confess our sins. And then we throw ourselves on the character of God. We don't throw ourselves on a process. We don't throw ourselves on a technique. We throw ourselves on God who is faithful and righteous and good. 
and we confess our sins, and we know he will forgive our sins because that's who he is. That's what he wants to do, <laughs> right? You understand, forgiving our sins is, is not something that's hard for God as if he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> he wants to do that. And I don't think this works like some kind of mechanistic system where you pull a lever and you get forgiveness out. And, and, and actually, it doesn't clarify for us. The, the, the text here does not tell us, is this private confession? Is it public confession? Is it just confession to God? Is it confession to a, to a brother or sister? It doesn't really clarify for us. And I don't think God's up there like, well, you didn't get the confession just right. I can't forgive you. I don't think that's how it works. Right? But I will say this. Sometimes, sometimes we really do need to confess to our fellow believers. And it's a lost discipline in the Protestant church. Sometimes there's nothing that's going to help us more than looking at someone we trust spiritually, telling them what we've done, and having them look at us and say, the Lord forgives your sin. And many times it may be that the Lord already has forgiven your sin, but you just can't feel it until you make use of the blessing of the Christian community and let somebody speak to you on behalf of the Lord. Let them hear you on behalf of the Lord. I encourage you to think about confessing your sin. I'm not talking about, you know, I have OCD issues. And I, Olivia will tell you how much she has had, had to help me. She <laughs> continues to have to help me while I work through things. I can, if I tell her something like that, I can go all day like, what's in there? I've got to dig it out and find it. And if I don't confess it, you know, that, that's not what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about besetting sins. Sins that you know uh, you've been hanging on to consistently you, they don't just go away probably you need to take that to somebody and you need to confess it because those kind of sins the truth is if you're not willing to do that you may not want to stop it and it's very easy to sit before God and say oh God I'm sorry I did that again go back out really deep down you know you're going to do it next time and you go to a brother or sister and you say look I'm embarrassed to say this but this is what I've been doing. And they say to you, the Lord has mercy on you. <laughs> then you're getting ready to make progress. You're getting ready to come out of it and say, I, I want to be done with that. You may have to confess again. You may have to confess multiple times, but at least you're on the pathway to coming out of that and being done with it. Confess your sins. And accept the great mercy that God has. When we admit our sins, we entrust ourselves to the good character of God who wants to forgive our sins. Are you ready to stop your sin? I'm not talking about being perfect again. Okay? There's all a balance to this. Maybe it's time to consider confession. Okay, let's look at the last bit here. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, there's a way to receive this and a way not to receive it, okay? We're dealing with figures here, metaphors, and we shouldn't view this as like, like God doesn't want to forgive us, but Jesus keeps interrupting him and saying, you've got to forgive him. Like, Come on, do it. <laughs> That's not the way this works. So remember remember that, that Paul says God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God's the one who has initiated this. The heart of Christ is the heart of God. So whatever you're doing with this, this picture, and exactly the realities that are worked out, just know that, that it's not like God's against you and Jesus is for you, but Jesus finally convinces him. That's not the way this works. God loves us. God wants to forgive us. 
But whatever has happened in the mystery of the atonement, I don't understand it all, but with Christ offering his life for us, something has changed and it's beautiful and that stands before God. What the text is meant to tell us is we're in really good shape. We're in really good shape with God. If we want to get open and honest about our sins, we're in good shape because our Lord Jesus has died for us. And there's not much better you can get than that. So we can say what's true about us with our sins and come into the light and accept the great kindness that he shows us there. Okay. Now I want to just say this in closing. The text says that uh, I'm trying to find it up there for you. He cleanses us, verse 7. The blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. All sin. I want you just to sit with that and receive it this morning. Do you know that you're probably more sinful than you know right now? <laughs> I know this from what I was saying just a minute ago. Because I know as we grow, we start to see more of our our lives where we haven't grown. We start to have the clarity of God's light shining. Probably right now, you have sin in your life that you're not really aware of. What do you do with that? Do you sit around and worry about it? Like like I'm saying myself, I've got to find it, what's in there? See, this text is a comfort to us when it says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We sing that song, uh, uh, It is well with my soul. And the verse says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. This is the idea that as we walk in the light, not giving our lives over to darkness, okay, that's a different thing. But as we are people who walk in the light, we don't have to worry about all that. We can relax. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. For some of you, that needs to reach way back into your past. And that all needs to have a capital A that can go all the way back there and say, yes, The blood of Jesus cleanses way, way back there. For some of you, it may need to cleanse right now from things that you know have been going on that need to stop. The blood of Jesus cleanses you. Step into the light. For some of you, it may be worrying about the future and what what might happen or what you don't know about yourself that, that you're doing. The blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. It is enough. The death of Christ is enough for that. And we can joyfully accept it and embrace it. The point is that Jesus died for us. Somehow, mysteriously, we don't understand it all. The death of Christ has secured us. But it's the love of God seen in, in Christ dying for us that secures us completely. And so we sing the song. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is the power of Christ in me. Right? That's what we sing, isn't it? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So I want to leave you today with an invitation into the light. An invitation that is safe. It's safe 
Because God already knows. God's already taken care of it. His love is secure. And the life he offers is truly good. Praise team, would you guys come on up? And as they come, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, would you please help us to step into the light today? Anyone here who's been walking in darkness, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you convict their hearts. Anyone here who's been struggling with guilt, even though they have given themselves to you and are seeking to walk in the light, I pray you remove the guilt. And stand us before you clean in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.